Welcome to the Florida Law Podcast, episode 14. I'm Rebecca Valentino Roca. I'm a lawyer practicing civil law in Florida. In this podcast, we seek to comment and explain newsworthy opinions issued by the Florida Supreme Court, its five district court of appeals, and federal courts. While these courts are in session, we'll be issuing a few episodes in one. Uh, we have been on a little bit of a hiatus recently, and my guest here is Santiago Roca. Santiago, say hi. Hi, hello. Thank you very much for being with us, and thank you very much, Roca, for inviting me. Well, happy holidays to everybody. We've been traveling a little bit, so we apologize for any break in the podcasting, but we will resume. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in co-hosting an episode, please drop us a line. So, Santiago, um, by the way, at the end of the podcast, we have a full disclaimer, so please listen to us. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the cases that you have set for Well, us the first case, the first criminal case I read uh, this week and I found interesting is a case discussing whether a defendant who has been designated as a career criminal can be uh, sentenced to, let's say, in stacking the counts. So, um, let's say, not in every count, not in all counts, uh, concurrently, but consecutively, meaning one after the other. And the next case that I'll have up today is, can a woman sustain a lawsuit in federal court against the Miami-Dade County Jail when they improperly classified her as a man and sent her to the men's jail. That sounds really weird, no? Wait till you hear about it. Okay. Well, the next case, the next uh, criminal case I have deals with uh, something that is common in the courtroom today is the independent act doctrine. Whether killing someone during the course of a kidnapping uh, an action committed by one of the kidnappers only is an independent act of that kidnapper or can be attributed to all and every one of the participants in the kidnapping. And finally, I'll have for you today, in the social media age, can an attorney be Facebook friends with a judge? Very interesting. So, let's start. You're up first, Mr. Oh, Roca. Thank you very much. Well. I was reading this uh, opinion uh, that it was issued by uh, the first district court of appeals of the state of Florida. Is uh, the style is Bobby Allen Bennett versus the state of Florida, and what happened here is two things very interesting. Number one, it has to do with uh, the failure of the defense attorney to object. The defendant was charged facing four counts for burglary, conspiracy to commit burglary, grand theft, and criminal mischief. All the four counts arise out of the same criminal incident, the same burglary, breaking into house. Okay? Well, in some of those charges, he was charged as principal, but not in all of those charges. So what happened is that the court read a jury instruction and instructed the jury as to the principal theory as if the defendant had been charged as a principal in all of them, in all counts. And the defense attorney did not object. Furthermore, 
he on the record stated that he didn't see to find anything wrong with the jury instructions. So it happens that when on appeal, uh, the defendant is arguing, no, there is something really wrong. I was not charged as a principal in several of these counts. The Court of Appeals, again, which is, I mean, that's the law, uh, told and ruled and said, well, uh, so sad and so bad, because as there was not a contemporaneous objection, that argument has been raised. So maybe you have an argument for inefficient assistance of counsel later on, but you don't have an argument now as to the uh, wrong application of the uh, doctrine of principles. For those who are not very familiar with Florida law, uh, principle means that when a group of persons commit a crime, every one of them can be, all of them can be uh, uh, whole responsible for everything that happens in the action. Doesn't matter who does what. What matters is that that person had an intent to commit the crime and the crime was committed. That was matter. So, uh, it's a powerful instruction, the principal instruction for the government, and in this case it was raised, uh, but too late, only on appeal. That's very important because it happens, I keep reading these cases in which the defense attorney do not properly preserve the record by uh, making the proper objections. And then the court of appeals cannot review the argument because it was not preserved in the court, in the trial court, in the court below. That's one thing, but the second interesting thing in this opinion is that the court, the judge, found that the defendant was a career criminal, habitual felony offender. However, the defendant the, was not sentenced as a career criminal, although was found to be a career criminal, and the assignation was put on him, he was not sentenced as a career criminal. He was sentenced in a different way. He was sentenced under the criminal uh, code, okay? The, the state of Florida uh, penal code, uh, punishment code, sorry. So under the punishment code, he was sentenced to three consecutive sentences of five years for burglary, followed by five years for conspiracy to commit burglary, followed by four years for grand theft. And the fourth count was a misdemeanor, was uh, criminal mischief, and he received 60 days. I assume he for time served. So, it's interesting because the judge, on the one hand, designated him as a career criminal, on the other hand, did not unstack the sentences. Something important because had the judge sentenced this defendant as a career criminal, the judge could not have stuck the sentences. As a career criminal, and there is a very famous uh, uh, opinion from the Florida Supreme Court, it's called Hell, this defendant faced a maximum of 30 years for the burglary, which is a second degree felony, punishable in Florida for up to 15, but because of the enhancement, uh, would be facing up to 30. So the judge did not impose the 30 and then 5 and 5 at the same time, I mean, uh, concurrently. 
When the judge did, did is okay, I'm not going to sentence you as a career criminal, although you are a career criminal, and I'm imposing 5 plus 5 plus 5, meaning 15 years, uh, for the same criminal act. No? Well, the defendant says, what makes a career criminal? The enhancement of the sentence or just the designation? And the Court of Appeal, the first Court of Appeal, says the enhancement of the sentence, not the designation. You can be designated a career criminal, but if your sentence is not enhanced, then your sentence can run consecutive to any other sentence in that particular case, unless it's enhanced, and then that's prohibited. So I found that uh, also interesting, because there could be the scenario, for instance, in which a defendant is found guilty of three third-degree felonies, and instead of facing 10 years maximum sentence as a habitual felony offender in one of them, he would be uh, he would be facing 15 if he's sentenced uh, under the uh, state of Florida punishment code. Okay, five more years, according to this opinion, because what makes like a sentence a career criminal sentence is not the designation, is the enhancement of the punishment. That's what the opinion says. Well, these sound like very technical procedural sentencing argument. However. They have great consequences to the defendant who are before these courts, correct? Yes, they have very important consequences. Also, the designation has consequences in the Florida Department of Corrections. Once you are designated a career criminal, uh, you lose your automatic right to the 15% of your sentence be uh, reduced by the Florida Department of Corrections. Uh, every, in, in Florida, every inmate has the right to be released after uh, doing 85% of their time, but for career criminals. Is that okay. gain time? Commonly well, for yes, gain it is time? commonly called gain time, but career criminals are not supposed to have gain time. They could in, under some career criminal sentences, but they were uh, under the statute, there is a presumption that they should not, okay? So, actually, the classification uh, is different. The prisoners they go, therefore, based on the classification, are more severe, with more discipline and more rules and more difficult prisons uh, than the prisoners uh, for the rest of the general uh, uh, inmate population. No, so it has consequences. Yes, it has important consequences. And what I see in this opinion is it could have both. On the one hand, your sentence uh, you could be sentenced consecutively. And at the same time, you face all those consequences for being designated career criminal, although you are not sentenced as a career criminal. Well, thank you, Santiago. So the case I have now is a true comedy of errors, almost like a Coen Brothers film, ten, which ten. is just, it, 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 it's quite a unique case that actually made the news this week. So if you've been, you know, paying attention a little bit, what's been going on in the papers, this case stems from the Federal Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, Fior Pichar de Velos versus Miami-Dade County Corrections, a nurse named Batuca Mara-Harris, Jackson Health System, um, another doctor, another nurse, et al. Okay, this opinion is pretty recent. It just was released on November 21st. 
and it plays out the following way. Now, the context, okay, what we have to be looking for this case in is in the context of a motion to dismiss. The trial court granted the motion to dismiss for the defendant, um, but the facts are really the key for what's going on in this case here. The plaintiff was a woman named Ms. Pichardo. She had come to uh, Miami to visit her daughter. Her daughter was about to give birth. She is a resident of the Dominican Republic. And unfortunately, while your, um, while she was, she got to the Miami airport, she had an issue. There was an old arrest warrant in her name, a federal arrest warrant. And so she was arrested and then taken to the Miami County Jail. She didn't even make it to the Miami airport. So she's in, she's originally from the Dominican Republic, like I said. She's a wife, mother, grandmother, a lawyer, and an elected official in the home city that she's from. She has been, she's 50 years old and was undergoing hormone replacement therapy um, to address symptoms of her menopause, and she also suffered from high blood pressure. So she was booked into the TJK jail, which is a jail here in Miami, a state jail, um, around 6.30 p.m. And at booking, she was entered as a female, processed through intake as a female. She, about an hour later, went through a strip search in which a female corrections officer searched her. And, you know, I don't need to detail that further, but there's a very extensive examination done there by the corrections officer. And after that point, um, the then she's taken around midnight to the medical unit inside. Once she's in the medical unit, because of her history of high blood pressure, she's waiting for the medical staff to take a look at her. At that point, another officer named Audrey Mormon, and then the defendant Nurse Harris and defendant Dr. Rodriguez Garcia all come into play in this great drama. They were all working there in the medical unit of the TGK jail. And both, um, while she was waiting, Nurse Harris approached Officer Mormon and asked if Mrs. Pichardo was a male. Um, even though she hadn't interacted with Mrs. Pichardo, she told Officer Mormon that she thought that she might be a male because she had hormone replacement therapy in her file. Um, and that that's commonly taken by people with converting to a transgender issue. And then Officer Mormon said, well, you know, she, you know, she was booked and classified as a female. She was strip searched, so I don't think she's a male. Um, and Nurse Harris said she was going to examine Mrs. Pichardo. So then Nurse Harris had an interview with Mrs. Pichardo, asked if she was a female, and she was confused why her gender was being questioned. Nurse Harris asked her if she had female parts, and Mrs. Pichardo said yes. And then around 2 a.m., Nurse Harris escorted Mrs. Pichardo to the exam room, where Dr. Rodriguez Garcia evaluated her in Spanish, um, but did not do a full uh, bodily examination of her. She was not asked to remove her clothes, she did not undress. He simply checked her mouth and listened to her lungs. At that point, um, he, on her chart, indicated that she took hormone replacement pills, but it also said menopause medical under the comments. And despite Dr. Rodriguez Garcia being aware that menopausal women in her age group commonly take this kind of medication, he assumed that she was a man undergoing gender reassignment. So at that point, um, he asked Pichardo if she had any surgery to her genitals. She said that she had all her genitals and she had not had any surgery to her genitals. 
But regardless of this, he decided to reclassify Mrs. Pichardo as a male because she was on hormonal replacement therapy. And at that point, he didn't physically examine her or ask another nurse. Um, after that, Nurse Harris took Ms. Pichardo back and told Officer Mormon that, quote, everything fell out, which meant that Ms. Pichardo's penis and testicles had fallen out. However, this actually didn't happen, and there was no basis for that statement. Um, at that point, Officer Mormon then um, asked again, but Mrs. Pichardo looks like a female. What is she doing here? And Nurse Harris insisted that she was a man and reminded her that she was booked as a female, that she was strip searched, but Officer Mormon wasn't able to persuade Nurse Harris. Then a supervisor was involved in corrections, and then it keeps going on and on and on. Despite the fact that numerous corrections officers were involved in this and getting and questioning Nurse Harris's decision, she was ultimately um, booked around 2.15 a.m. into the mail jail. So she was transferred to Metro West, where she was treated as a man in place with the general population. An officer actually told her in that wing that, hey, you're a woman. And she goes, well, good luck if you're alive in there tomorrow. <laughs> Hollywood. Hollywood. And as I'm horrified. That's what you read. Oh, my God. As you can imagine, it didn't get better from there. Um, Mrs. Pichardo was surrounded by about 40 men in a giant cell. They were harassing her. She was scared to use the, the restroom there. She urinated on herself. The male inmates were taunting her. Um, and at that point, it just continued until the next day. Several inmates tried to tell corrections officer that she was a woman. And they the, not the inmates. Inmates. Yes. No, they are even the inmates are telling the doctor, oh, this is a woman. Oh, okay, continue, continue. So her family finds out she's been arrested. They say, why is she in this, this jail at Metro West? This is a male jail. And at that point, at around um, 7.30 p.m., okay, after she'd been in there since 2 a.m. the night before, she was strip searched again by a female nurse, some more harassing comments during the strip search. And then, lo and behold, they determined that she was a female, and around 9 p.m., after being there since 2 a.m., she was transferred back to the all-female unit and the TG. And she's, she's the mother of three, no? She's a grandma, she's a mom, she's a lawyer, she's an elected official in okay. the okay. public. Okay. And after the fact, she had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, ridicule of her family, and professional decline, humiliation, marital instability. Um, and at that point, she filed 15 claims under federal and state law against all of these parties involved. The defendants, the doctor and the nurse, moved to dismiss the claim, claiming that they had qualified immunity. As, and at that point, the motions to dismiss began to fly back and forth. Um, they argued that Mrs. Pichardo didn't state a cause of action because the nurse and Dr. Rodriguez Garcia's didn't have any subjective knowledge that they had state claims of deliberate indifference. So at that point, um, you know, the motion to dismiss was granted. However, in this court of appeals, they overruled this decision. They ruled that Ms. Pichardo must establish that they violated a constitutional right and that these rights were clearly established and there was a risk of serious harm of which the official who is subjectively aware does not respond reasonably to this risk. And as you can imagine, the uh, inmate 
did not need to have something bad happen to her in order for this to occur, and no one disputes how dangerous it is for a female to be placed in a 40-person male cell by herself. So at that point, the Court of Appeals has now reversed, and Mrs. Pichardo now goes back to the district court for trial, and further proceedings consistent therein. Amazing, amazing case, amazing opinion. So, so now Santiago, we're going to take a little break. Okay. And we will be back after this. Okay. So from that jail saga, this Coen Brothers comedy of error from Mrs. Pichardo, we turn into a completely different direction, but still in the kind of a criminal context. Santiago, what do you have for us? Well, what is an independent act? that happens constantly in the courtrooms, in uh, criminal trials in which there are two or more defendants. I mean, uh, it's very difficult for jurors to understand many times that in criminal law there is not proportional liability like in civil law. In civil law, uh, jurors are asked to determine the liability of the percentage of liability of every party. Well, not in criminal cases. In criminal cases, every party is liable for 100% of the action. So the response many times is try to get an instruction on independent act, arguing that my client participated in the act, in the crime, but the crime was going to be A and then ended to be B. So why my client, my why my client is responsible for B when the only thing that he was taught during the uh, conspiracy to uh, prepare this crime was crime A. In this particular case, I'm referring to First District Court of Appeals in the state of Florida, uh, the Entrance Levon Kit uh, versus the state of Florida. In this opinion released November 30th, uh, uh, 2018. There is a good review of what is an independent act. And what happened in this case explains the facts of what is not an independent act very well. Well, essentially, it's a group of people who decided to kidnap two individuals, a male and a female, because they believe that these two people, they have drugs and money from drugs. So they decide to kidnap them and then to transport them uh, to a location where uh, they were going to beat them up and torture them to extract information. During all this uh, operation to transport them, the female is able to escape from the car in which she was being transported. And while escaping from that particular car, one co-defendant shot at her and killed her. So now, Suddenly, all of them are charged with a first-degree felony murder because it was a murder committed during a robbery or during a kidnapping. And now they are facing first-degree felony murder, all of them. So, in this particular case, the defendant who did not shoot says, well, I want to your instruction for independent because I never agreed to shoot her, I never agreed to kill her, my co-defendant did it on his own. Well, the Court of Appeal says no. Criminal law does not work that way. Maybe that's proper in a civil trial in which there is a 
allocation of liability, but not in criminal law. In criminal law, once you are involved in what is called a forcible felony, a violent felony, and you are responsible for anything that happened during the commission of that felony. Regardless of you want that to happen, and regardless of whether you agree that to happen, you are responsible for it. The key element is whether it's a foreseeable, foreseeability. When you are engaged in a violent crime, everything that happens from beginning to end, including a homicide, is forcible because it's a violent crime. Therefore, you are responsible for all the actions that you yourself help to set in motion. If you start the crime, in other words, you are stuck with the crime, whatever is the ending of the crime, and you are responsible for it. So they say that the, an independent act instruction is appropriate only when the actions of the cofellum who allegedly acted outside the scope of the original plan were not, were not foreseeable based on the actions a defendant set in motion. So if you set in motion all these actions, you are stuck with it. When normally an independent act uh, your instruction is proper, even when there is an intervening circumstances. For instance, after a bank robbery, the, the robbers stop, um, stop at the same house to do something, they're supposed to drop the bounty, uh, to drop the guns, but then they get into the car, and when they are in the car, they are spotted by the police, and then there is a chase, and during the chase, somebody is killed. Well, that's an independent act, because that murder was not caused during the robbery and was not planned during the robbery. Something different is that if that person dies fleeing from the bank directly without the intervening circumstances. So that's what their opinion explains. I found that this opinion interesting because this is a problem that constantly comes in, in criminal cases with uh, several defendants and the reason is that criminal law in Florida does not allow to apportion individual liability but is 100% liability in other words you are guilty or you are not guilty not but there is, no, yes, there is not like a 50% guilty okay? like, in civil, like in civil cases and this is what makes the uh, independent act your instruction uh, so difficult to get for defendants. Thank you so much for that explanation. So now we're turning to a social media case, which is before, before our Florida Supreme Court. It's the law offices of Hussein and Hussein versus United Services Automobile Association, an opinion that it was issued on November 15, 2018. And the opinion is a little bit, it, it works its way backwards, so I'm going to try to untangle it a little bit for you. This was a case that stemmed out of the Third District Court of Appeals here in Miami. Uh, what had occurred was that the uh, law offices of Hersane and Hersane had filed a motion to disqualify the trial judge. The, uh, they were alleging that the att an attorney appeared before the trial judge on behalf of a potential witness and a potential party in the litigation and were listed as a friend on the trial judge's personal Facebook page. And they, the Hussains had filed and signed affidavits in which they swore that because the trial judge is Facebook friends with the attorney, 
They have a well-founded fear of not receiving a fair and impartial trial. So the judge uh, ruled that they were not going to disqualify themselves for this case, and up it went to the Third District Court of Appeals, and then up again to the Florida Supreme Court because there were a circuit split on this matter. The Fourth District Court of Appeals ruled that there was sufficient basis for disqualification, and the Third District in this case said that there was not. So here our Florida Supreme Court is resolving this issue. So the background and context to this is something that, that most attorneys remember. Back in 2009, the Florida Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee had issued an opinion stating that judges were prohibited from adding lawyers who appear before them as friends on their Facebook pages or allowing lawyers to add them as friends. And this conveys or permits an impression that they're in a special position to influence the judge. However, the Florida Supreme Court disregarded this, this ethics advisory committee and sided down with the Third District Court of Appeals in this case. It's very interesting because if you read the whole opinion, um, I had to chuckle to myself because the Florida Supreme Court is determining whether their motion was legally sufficient and whether the facts, if assumed, would be true, would place a reasonably prudent person in fear of not receiving a fair and impartial trial. The went through the whole definition of what is a friend under what yeah, but I guess, yes, I guess that's the key, no? I mean, what is a friend? I mean, yeah, Facebook is a friend, a face, sorry, a Facebook, a friend. Somebody who is friend with you on Facebook, who lives in New Guinea, let's suppose, that you have never seen, you will never see in your life, you will never know anything of that person. Is that person really a friend? Although appears to be a friend in Facebook? I mean, you know, it, it went through the Webster's definition about a friend is attached by a feeling of affection or, or esteem, and whether that was aligning with what Facebook friends really are, and they examined the context of Facebook friends and whether it's really a term of art, it's really a person digitally connected to another person, but they may not be a friend, like you were saying before, that they may be someone that they've never met in person before, they could be a virtual stranger or a complete stranger to the, to the person, and as it stands, it doesn't automatically qualify for a, uh, a recusal from the trial court. And essentially the Supreme Court said here that they sided with the Third District Court of Appeals, that, which goes back to this general proposition that's been in place for years and years and years before social media. That the mere allegation of a mere friendship between a judge and a litigant or attorney appearing before the judge standing alone does not constitute a legally sufficient basis for, for disqualification. So, you know, as it stands now, that alone is not enough. But, you know, I don't know how litigants are going to proceed from here, whether they're doing more discovery, etc. But if you I mean, you don't have to disqualify because a lawyer contributes to your campaign, to your judicial campaign, no? That's not the basis for disqualification, for automatic disqualification. If, I don't know about a lobbyist, but as, as an attorney, if yeah. an attorney contributes to a judicial campaign for either for or against the judge, that is not a basis for disqualification. Well, imagine being a Facebook friend, I mean, there are people who have 30,000 Facebook friends, and in fact, in life, they have not a single friend. They can call no one thing. So, I mean, <laughs> that's why... You're revealing something personal about yourself. No, so. I don't. No, 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 <laughs> Miss Rebecca, I don't have a Facebook page. I don't have anything in social media because I want to avoid those possible problems. 
So I have nothing to do with social media. But, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, the opinion. Well, you bring up the point in the dissenting opinions, which are very interesting. You know, the, it, the Florida Supreme Court says it adopts a majority rule. It examined other states and other positions, but there is still a minority rule that the dissent is pointing to and says that judges give up a certain amount of freedoms in the average citizen too, and to avoid any appearance of impropriety, this should be granted. So, you know, there is a split. It wasn't a, a very, it wasn't a, a, a home run for um, the Third District Court of Appeals uh, position on this case. No, I guess it can be seen both sides. I mean, there can be friends who are not Facebook friends, who are real friends, okay? And they can be, they can be Facebook friends that there is nothing that about friendship with those guys. So, so I don't know if somebody complex matter, but yes, in my opinion, it is a personal opinion. I know you have a different opinion on this matter, but in my personal opinion, social media is a problem. It's not to me, it's not nothing that helps me. So to avoid create any confusion and issue, I don't have any social media. Well, I don't have a personal opinion on this, so I'm going to correct you on that. Okay. Thank you. Just in case going forward. I stand corrected. <laughs> well, it was very interesting. So um, that we're going to take a little break and we're going to wrap up. And that concludes the 14th episode of the Florida Law Podcast with Rebecca Valentina Roca. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. And now for our disclaimer, so our listeners know, this podcast cannot and should not be construed as legal advice. This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only. If you have any questions about a case you may have, we advise you to contact an attorney. This podcast cannot and should not be construed as creating any illegal relationship with any subscriber or listener. And this podcast has not been approved for any credit or legal education in any states. So just as a, a, a note on this, um, Cynthia and I are trying to put together another episode this week where we're going to, in the future, hopefully we'll get this out, on what's going on in the United States Supreme Court. So look forward to that. Yes, in criminal cases. Very interesting criminal cases. So hopefully you'll get a bonus episode before the holidays um, commence. And finally, this episode was produced, directed, scripted, and edited by Rebecca Valentina Roca. I'll copy written and all rights reserved. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much.